the Better Golf Podcast, powered by Win Daily Sports, where betters go to bet better. Here are your hosts, Tee Off Sports and Sticks Picks. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Better Golf Podcast. With me, as always, Spencer Aguiar at Tee Off Sports. It's the Open Championship Week, and big news, we got a former PGA player Arguably one of the tallest players in PGA Tour history. I don't know if that's true, but Jay Delsing from St. Louis, former UCLA college golfer. I believe he is six foot four, absolute tower of a man, but he will be joining us shortly. Spencer, how are we feeling this week for the Open? Very excited. Last major of the year. This should be a good interview with Jay when we have him on. So, you know, I'm very appreciative that he's going to join us. And yeah, I saw that he's six five even when I looked at his Wikipedia page. So, very tall guy. Yeah, they give maybe Wikipedia gives the the extra inch like high school sports. You know, I was always a point guard at six two. I'm only six one, but you know, the scouts thought I was six two, of course, and ten pounds heavier, built like a brick shit house. But real quick, John Deere Classic. It was honestly one of my best weeks ever. It would have been my best week ever if Sebastian just didn't fall apart so hard on Sunday. That sucked. He was my my uh, I guess my Twitter hammer of the week. I can't call it a bomb of the week because they need to be higher than. Three to one, I believe, is what we decided, or maybe two to one, depending on the field. But man, I mean, it's very hard to put together four great rounds of golf, and that's what he would have had to done. I, I guess he was kind of above average on on Friday and Saturday. He went real low Thursday, first round leader. Shout out to PGA Tout for telling me I had to take it because I guess as as high on Munoz as I was, that's probably something I should add to my card. It's just a a market I usually don't attack, but. Yeah, I mean, top 40s are great per usual, and uh, I think you were ahead of winning week two. So, I mean, any thoughts on last week before we get into the Open? I'm sure people don't really want to hear about the the Pro-Am John Deere Classic we had last week with that field. Yeah, it's always good to recap the wins, though. And and when we were, you know, we talked about a couple things off the air. And one of those was, as you had uh, mentioned, Sebastian Munoz as a play that you liked. And we didn't talk about it on the show. And it was one of those things where I mentioned to you, Munoz, Gim, Harry Higgs. Those were the three biggest outliers for me when I got rid of, you know, the volatility that I'm looking for with it. So Munoz was a guy that was a great first round leader. As you mentioned, PGA Tout put you on to him. I unfortunately didn't have the same success with it. Uh, I ended up having 11.42 units in play. I profited 1.705. I know you had a seven-unit win, so that's a huge win for you. I was 0. minus 0.95 in outright. Close call on Munoz because of you, but pretty spotty everywhere else. My Friday model did like Glover to win, but I didn't add a wager there. He hadn't won in 10 years. Didn't necessarily want to go down that route. He was only 12 to 1. I thought there were better values on the board, even though my model liked him. I won two units in the head-to-head market. Two zero and one record. Uh, my premium win in my Rotoballer article of Shank minus one twenty over long did bring my record there to ninety one fifty one and nine over three years. I had an additional win of Perez minus one twelve over Hickok. Uh, top forty market continued to be very stout for me. Plus two point three four units there. Uh, two sizable wins on Shank and Norlander. Smaller victories on Von Taylor, and then of course your Munoz top thirty and top forty plays. And then the in-tournament head-to-heads, I lost 1.69 units on. Um, as a whole, I think everything kind of just regressed a little bit. I'm still 113, 71, and 20 on those over the last two years for 61%. But I'd obviously not like – it's not great when you get swept across the board in any particular realm of the betting market. But, you know, profitable week for me, not as big of a week as you had. But 
I'll take nearly two units and we'll march on to the open championship. Hell yeah, man. I saw a lot of people give us shout outs on Twitter too, just for like DFS knowledge as well, just for kind of what we're dropping in here. So that's exactly what we're here for, just to make you better at whatever it is you're investing in that weekend in golf. But let's get at the open. I think Jay should be joining us any minute now. Kind of If you want to go over the course breakdown here, what's important to you, and then we'll get Jay on. Yeah, so it's Royal St. George's 2,204 yards, par 70. Greens will have 40% bent grass, 60% fescue, 156 golfers with top 70 in ties making the cut. No tournament in here from 2020 because of COVID. Shane Lowry won in 2019 at 16 under. Francesco Molinari in 2018 at 8 under. Jordan Spieth at 12 under in 2017. Henrik Stenson in 2016 at 20 under. And Zach Johnson in 2015 at 15 under. I think if we are, as you mentioned, like we're not a DFS show. But we do like to add DFS information when it becomes readily available that we can talk about stuff. You know, I think it's important to stay on top of lineups because of the potential for a weather bias. Wind comes in from an awkward direction here, and it seems like the morning waves are typically calmer. That's something that you might want to look at if you're playing showdown. We have wide fairways that will offer forgiveness off the tee, but the cost of missing is extremely penal. Any shot in a bunker is likely a one-stroke penalty. And that includes greenside sand traps that were deadly here in 2011. So, you know, before I get into the exact statistical breakdown, I do want to note that this was the highest combination of event history and current form that I've ever measured in unison. I never go under 50% of my model being derived statistically, but I only placed a 40% weight there this week. The other two got 30% each. So that's a really big number there. We have seen 13 of the last 14 winners of the Open record a top 10 at the event previously. And every victor since 2010 has provided a top three in one of their last seven worldwide starts. So when I did start measuring this metrically, I started with weighted ball striking for 20%. That is essentially just the PGA Tour's definition of it, where I recalculated total driving with a 70% split on distance, 30% accuracy, and added in GIR percentage at another 70-30 difference, this time favoring GIR. I put 20% on weighted short game consisting of an even split between around the green scrambling bogey avoidance and putting from five to 10 feet. These greens are large. I I mean, I think that makes three putt avoidance another acceptable stat, but I felt like I was doubling down on bogey avoidance and putting from five to 10 feet if I did that. So I kept it with the four at 25% each uh, to give me the 20% total there. I have strokes gain approach for 20%. I think finding the fairways will be the first step to the equation, but Lynx Golf is typically one from golfers that can control their irons in all conditions. One of those conditions, of course, being wind, which is why I put 10% on strokes gain total in moderate moderate to severe wind. The conditions might be listed as benign at this moment, but even the easiest of breezes can reach 20 miles per hour at this coastal test. I have stand save percentage for 10%. Players got up and down just 34% of the time here in 2011. As I mentioned, hitting greens will be important to avoid this penalty, but I still think I you know, I waited it to try to find golfers that would avoid absolutely imploding out of a greenside bunker. You look at a guy like Ryan Palmer, he's had the propensity in his career when he gets stuck in a bunker to not be able to get out. I'm trying to limit that as much as I can. And then I wrapped it up with 10% on off the tee and 10% on par four average. The par 70 gives us a heightened number of par fours. And I wanted to highlight golfers who were more likely to avoid danger off the tee. You know, a category like good drive percentage might have done that better but I thought I already had built something along those lines with total driving stats. 
I absolutely love that. I'm very high on total driving as well. Just going to be very important to get off the tee and be accurate on the fairway. Huge uh, bump in my mouth for approach and around the green. So a typical makeup for me, not too different than what I valued last week for the John Deere classic. Obviously this is a much different tournament than that, but metrics wise, that's kind of what I went off of. And my model just shows a ton of top golfers at the top. And historically that's kind of who wins this thing is very good golfers. And you don't really see a surprise too often, but anything, anything else that you want to mention, I'm going to try to get Jay on here shortly. But any matchups that you like right off the bat while we get going? Uh, there were a couple matchups I did uh, make a little bit of a small wager on. I mean, one was a number grab. The other two I thought were just a pretty good price where I was getting an edge on it. I had Stuart Sink minus 112 over Ryan Palmer. Sink was 20th for me in my model. Palmer 57th. As I mentioned, Palmer's just the guy that I think there's a big number potentially looming for him if he does get stuck in a bunker. I think that's something that's not necessarily like, I mean, if he's hitting a bunch of greens in regulation, you can make an argument that that doesn't come into play, but I'm trying to avoid that. I have Sergio minus 110 over Justin Rose, uh, 12th for me with Sergio, 45th with Rose. Feels as if Rose is getting all his event history baked into this price. And Sergio has been very good here with 10 top 10s and 23 tries. And then the last one I did punch a ticket on was Brooks Kepka plus 162 over John Rahm. I typically don't go to the top of the market for any of these wagers. And this is just a pure number grab, but Kepka's 84 under par in major since 2016. The next closest options are DJ and Xander at, I believe, uh, 21 under par with for both of them. So, you know, Kepka's a guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just been dominant. And I think Kepka's a guy where 162 is too high of a number. I know Rom's in really good form. I'm not looking to take him on. But if you get rid of his performance in 2019, that's the only top 10 he's had at the Open. I don't think that that's something that's worrying. If Rom wins the tournament, sure. But Kepka's just a guy that at 162, I thought it was a really good number to grab on a guy who's arguably, you could make an argument that he's the most likely person to win any time a major tees it up. Yeah, it's hard not to like him. And what are his outrights at the moment? I didn't see it. Hold on, hold on. Where are we at? 16 to 1. So is there value on that just overall? Like what you think of this outright market for these top guys? Like everybody that you really want that you just named is under 20 to 1. Xander, Dustin, Brooks, obviously John Rahm goes without saying he's the best golfer on the planet right now. But is there any value in those tickets, I guess, from an outright perspective? Once we already said it's always these top guys that seem to be going up to the top. I know Shane Lowry was a little bit longer last year or two years ago, whenever it was. But that was just just a monumental performance he put on, especially for Ireland, too. That was badass. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a ton of value up top. I would say Kepka's probably the one guy that you could make an argument for. Uh, maybe Spieth if you want to go down that road also. Like those were the two guys that showed the best outright value for me from guys under 25 to 1. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about the outright card, but when I did get in the 30s, Cantley was one of the best values on the board for me. And I am playing with fire this week. My model loves Jason Day. I'm hesitant to mention him because not mentioning him has been making him close in this. But Day was another guy who was a really good value. I, I mean, I think if you want to just throw a couple more out there, Patrick Reed showed as a value. Joaquin Neiman showed as a value. I don't know if Scotty Scheffler can win this tournament, but Scotty Scheffler showed as a value for me. So I think there's ways to play some of these guys. I did see an 18 to one at one of the legal sports books on Brooks. I don't know if that number's moved or not. There's a chance that maybe that has fallen to 16. I think that's probably the closest you're going to get though from a guy up in that range that I did see value on just because, I mean, like I said, if he's 80 something under par and he's 60 
strokes better than the second place guy. Like, I don't know why. And my model never seems to love him. But this is the first time that my model really since his first uh, U.S. Open victory that he had. My model had him top five that week. And usually he's never that high. And he took down the U.S. Open. I believe I had him at 40 or 50 to one that week. And this week he's right back in. He's third for me overall. And uh, when I get rid of some of the stuff, I mean, Xander gets pushed down because I don't know if Xander's necessarily going to win like I'm not going to trust the numbers I have on Xander for that reason, but I don't know. Cantley, Brooks, Spieth, Reed are probably the four guys that are kind of in that sub 50 to one range that I like the most. Name that you said that I love, Joaquin Neiman. I like him a ton this week. He checked almost every box that I wanted him to, so that'll be a guy that I'm keeping my eye on for sure. I haven't punched any tickets on him, top 40 or anything yet, but big fan of Neiman. So I'm glad you said that Patrick Reed as well. I, I found him to be a value Scotty Shuffler as well. And obviously we love Jason day. So it's hard to fade him. Um, but I, I just don't know what I'm doing on the outright card right now. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's not a ton of value with it. And as I said, like I, I'm not in love with, uh, recommending Jason day. It's never gone well for him. I texted you like he's as likely to like show up to the wrong venue and just, you know, or get hurt or something to go wrong with it. But eighth in my model and a guy who is pretty readily available, I believe at about 90 to one. I mean, there may be some, his number seems to be on the move. Vegas has him circa has him at 95 to one, which they do tend to give some of the best odds in Vegas. When you look at the outright market with it, but even a lot of these online books, I mean, there's a lot of value to be had for him. And uh, as far as Neiman and Scheffler go and like Reed, those are guys that can hit the stinger. So if you can have these low ball flight hitters and the wind does pick up, I think it's a really good course fit for them. Maybe Neiman, you know, it's interesting because you take a guy like Neiman, you take a guy like Scheffler, you take a guy like Morikawa. These guys either have no open championship experience or very little open championship experience. And I think you can make an argument that you do need to have some longevity on tour. You need to have played this event. Links golf is different than a normal course, but these are guys that can compete. I don't know if they're guys that can win. And, and the thing with Cantley is even though it's only his third time teeing it up in the open, he's 29 years old. He's older than most guys that are going to be teeing it up for the third time. So I think he does have the experience to potentially, you know, find the winner's circle here. And anytime you have win play bogey avoidance, he's a guy that I always seem to like. Love it. Love it. Love it. And the moment of truth, we got Jay Delsing on former PGA player. Jay, how are we doing today? Dude, thanks for having me on. I apologize to all the people that read what you said, all those nice things you said about me on Twitter. <laughs> I have zero chance of of uh, of uh, living up to that. And you saw how much trouble I had trying to just get onto the damn computer with you guys, but I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no problem. Technology's a bitch. So I want to introduce you to Spencer Aguirre. Spencer's my co-host here every week. He is a golf right data on. genius. Um, we were just talking about you uh, real quick, just sort of a little comedy. Were you the tallest player on tour when you were playing? Oh yeah. yeah I figured so. Yeah. <laughs> Andy North was, uh, right about the same height. Then Phil Blackmar came along and his nickname was big because he was, you know, I weigh 190 and I played at about 185 and big was about six, seven and weighed about 310. So he just had the nickname big because <laughs> everything he did was big. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Did you view it as an advantage or or a disadvantage being taller than everybody else? You know what I would say, Spencer, um, in our era, it was a disadvantage because we didn't have a lot of uh, super specified equipment back then, bro. I was like, I was stuffing old shafts in the end of my grips to try to make my clubs long enough for me to swing. And so the overall weight was extremely heavy. You know, there was just a bunch of stuff that 
I love being tall, don't get me wrong, but sometimes, you know, trying to get the equipment right was just, um, was not very good. Yeah, I mean, I, I would switch you for height any single time. I'm like 5'11". I know Nick was saying he's 6'1". You know, 6'1". We'll give you 6'2", though, on it. But uh, In the program, I'm 6'2". Yeah. yeah. 6'6 six, six with the afro. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thanks a lot for coming on, Jay. Um, I know uh, Spencer had a couple questions for you right off the bat, just to you know, have, introduce you to the audience for those that don't know you. But I just think it's the coolest thing when I was researching you. You're a St. Louis guy. I grew up in Waterloo, Illinois, right across the river there. But when I saw that your uh, your open championship that you qualified for was at St. Andrews in 1995 with the winner that year was legendary John Daly of all things. I just wanted to ask you, like, does that like the, are those memories so vivid in your mind? What was it like playing at St. Andrews in the old course and just like your thoughts overall on an open championship? Oh, my God, guys, it was so cool. First of all, I went over. Faraday hooked me up uh, with some friends. David and I've been friends forever. And he hooked me up. Um, with a, a caddy over there and some friends. And I played in the Scottish Open the week before at Carnoustie, which was just a blast. But it's funny because I, he said, uh, hey, I got this great caddy for you. His name is Irish John, and he's got a caddy for you. And I said, great, how am I going to meet him? He goes, he'll find you. And I'm like, oh, dear God, really? You know, I haven't been over there before. Uh, and I said, well, give me some idea of how the hell I'm going to know who he is. And he goes, okay, he's got summer teeth. And I'm like, what? Yeah, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, he goes, he's got summer teeth. Some are over here and some are over there, but there's none are all in a row. And I'm like, come on, Faraday, you've got to give me more to hang my head under that. Anyway, uh, playing in the um, – I had a really good tournament in the, in the uh, Scottish. It was the first time I got to meet Tiger. Tiger was playing over there as an amateur. And it's funny because, guys, Tiger was talking about, man, I'm playing like shit. I'm playing crappy. I can't – you know, and he wound up beating me by a stroke. And I, fit, I had a pretty good tournament. I finished like 12th. And I thought I was still playing pretty well, you know. Um, and I was like, man, I don't I don't really know much about this kid, but he's kind of as an amateur and he's finishing in the top 10 and he's kind of bitching about it. And then, you know, a little while, uh, not too long after that, uh, we all knew who he was. And I didn't tell anybody that story too much. But St. Andrews was a blast, guys. We got pretty mild weather most of the time. To, on Saturdays round, the wind switched. In St. Andrews and hell, if I know what direction it came out of, but it came out of a totally different direction. And the golf course played so differently. But I had a blast. My experience was great. Uh, the, I'd say the um, the Euros definitely were not pro-American by any stretch of the imagination. But um, I'll tell you a funny story about Irish John. We're, we're at Carnoustie and I'm playing. And I'm playing pretty well, like I said. And um each day in the middle of the round somewhere after I'd hold a putt or something, this guy's like 70 years old. He could barely carry my bag. He's barely taller <laughs> than my bag, you know? And all of a sudden he's got all this jump in his step. He's hopping, he's this and that. And, and I didn't think anything of it. Then the third day, you know, the 18th hole is a monster over there at Carnoustie. I mean, you could make it, you could stand up there and just empty your bag, shooting balls every direction, trying to figure out which way to play that, how to play it, not hit it out of bounds, et cetera. And I, I wound up making a really nice putt for par. And my caddy was all but doing like a cartwheel voice. And I'm like, finally, I pulled him to the side and I'm like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like what? And he goes, uh, you won. You won again. I'm like, I didn't win anything, man. I'm like, you know, whatever, play some in, whatever. And he goes, no. He goes, aren't you familiar with Ladbrokes? And I go, no, I have no idea what that is. And he goes, and he points to a trailer over there and there's, Guys, there's action on every group. 
this is back in the old days, 1995. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're betting on me? And he goes, yeah. He goes, nobody knows who you are over there. Your odds are great. You're whipping it. I played, <laughs> I played with Paul McGinley and whipped his ass a couple of days in the first two days. And then I played, I forget who I played in this, in, on Saturday. And I'm like, oh, man, I have no idea. And I, I really didn't care. But I said, you probably ought to be careful with that. You know, because so, guys, we go out on Sunday and I'm, I'm in a nice position. If I have a good round, you know, I could finish in the top four or five. I don't think I could win, but I could come pretty close. And I get paired with the Scottish amateur champ. Oh, man, I can't remember his name now. But this dude was like six foot ten and weighed three. Gordon Sherry was his name. Gordon Sherry. He's a redheaded kid. Nice as hell. And I know for a fact that my caddy unbuckled on me. I know he thought, oh, man, this kid's going to be nervous, blah, 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 whatever. Gordon Sherry shoots 63. My caddy was like 50 yards behind me all day long. I'm like, get your ass up here. I told you you should be careful. He's like, how was I supposed to know this kid was going to go off? He finished like second or third for the tournament. I'm like, dude, we're playing, you know? (laughs) Forget it. Let's go. Get your ass over here and give me a club. So, um, yeah, we had a blast. It was typical of, of, of Faraday introducing me to a character like that. And playing St. Andrews was a blast. I have uh, good buddies with John Daly. He grew up in Arkansas. He used to come up to St. Louis all the time and play junior golf together. And uh, I had him on my show, and I've been in contact with him every week, you know, just about how he's doing and stuff, boys. And um, it was great to see him win. And, some of the stuff that Constantino Roca did, the par he made on 17, you guys, was out of this world. And then he chili dips his ball into back into the Valley of Sin on 18 and then holds like a 85-foot chip putt, whatever the hell you want to call it, just to get in the playoff. And I was really glad that, you see, I got the red, white, and blue on. I was really glad to see, you know, Daly come away with the Claret Jug. It was, it was pretty awesome. That is a badass story. Go ahead, Spencer. Sorry, man. No, I I was just going to say, I mean, you obviously gave us a really good description of that tournament. Open championships provide awkward win from different directions with it. And and you had a long career that saw you make 276 of 565 cuts on the PGA Tour. That run resulted in 30 top tens, a pair of runner-ups during the 1993 New England Classic and 1995 FedEx St. Jude Classic, as well as participating in seven major championships. You know, as someone that wasn't guaranteed a tee time during each Grand Slam event, I have a two-part question for you. Did your mindset ever change during the week of a major? And if so, did it make you play more or less aggressively? Oh, those are good questions. First of all, Spencer, when you're going through that, just add some things to spice that career up of mine a little bit. You know, throw in something that people can't research. It's pretty hard nowadays because of the internet. But so um, so getting into a major um, was, it's interesting because I played three U.S. amateurs and I nearly won the U.S. Junior when I was a kid and, and, and only wound up playing in three U.S. Opens, which was really disappointing for me. I had to qualify every single year, and I, I think I was first alternate more than I got in. And I always, always felt like, uh, well, I know I was always better than I played, and my career doesn't really speak for what I thought I could do. But at the end of the day, I am what I am, right? My scores represent me, and uh, so you got to kind of own that. Playing in major championships when I um, uh, I played in the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. I played a U.S. Open at Wingfoot. I played a U.S. Open at Hazeltine. I don't know where the hell I played my my PGAs and playing a, a British Open. The, the golf courses were were are so entirely different when you go over to Europe. So when you're playing a British Open, I mean, for example, you get up on the first tee at St. Andrews 
And I'm not kidding you guys. The fairway's 190 yards wide with no rough and no bunkers and no nothing. And I'm like, typically speaking, the first tee shots are always dicey because you haven't had a club in your hands since you got off the range. You might've hit a couple of putts, but you're always like, man, I had some days where I didn't miss a shot on the range and go on the first tee and can't hit it all day. And then I've had more days where I'm shanking it and duck hooking it and all this other crap on the range and go out and put on a stripe show on it. So the first tee was always kind of dicey, but then I got to St. Andrews. I'm like, Oh hell, bring this on. I could play this one all day long. You know, uh, uh, um, and I love, I grew up on a place like St. Andrews, except it was a complete dump. It didn't have a lot of bunkers, no watered fairways. So running the ball along the ground works for me. I like it. It's creative. I, I, I had no trouble knocking the ball down and, and things like that. So playing in the British was fantastic. Playing in a U.S. Open was different, guys, because I was a crappy driver of the ball. I was longer than hell. I would have been great in today's game because nobody gives a damn about hitting a fairway. But I was always all over the place, but really long. And what the guys that helped me, the guys like Andy North and people like that, that, that kind of took me under the wing, they were always trying to get me to back off. I, I went out and got a one iron. I, hit, I drove with my one iron all the time because I could find it. You know, and when I, when I was playing out of the fairway, I was a much better player. But it was a totally different uh, uh, atmosphere, guys, because you can play balls out of the rough now because the grooves are so aggressive. And the ball's like a rocket, except it sticks, you know. And back in the day, we're in the we're in the rough, and you're in the rough, you're hitting a flyer every single time. And the ball, you have no control over this sucker, and and it's gone. And so you were always landing 15, 20 yards short of the green, trying to hobble it up there. So when I played in the U.S. Opens, it was it was difficult, and I had a real chance at Pebble to have a good tournament. I wound up um, fitting, I made a triple bogey on 16, which was an easy hole. I hit it just in the rough and chipped it out, out down in front of the bunkers into a divot and then it got worse from there, believe it or not. And then 17 was playing. Nobody in the last three and a half hours of tee times, guys, on the 17th hole hit the green in regulation. It was playing like 240 yards. The wind was howling 40 miles an hour in from the left. And it was, I, I, I sit in my caddy and he goes, what are you going to do here? And I said, I got no damn idea. I can tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going left. I'm going to put it in one of the bunkers and just try to get it up and down. And that's the only pars that anybody made, and I didn't get it up and down. And then a part 18, I wound up finishing probably 20th or 30th or something like that. But if I'd have gone par, par, birdie, and 18 wasn't playing that hard because it was downwind, I'd have finished, you know, fifth or sixth or 10th or something like that. We were all kind of bunched up there. But the the the, the golf courses in major championships, guys, just they punish you. They punish your game. And whenever I didn't play aggressively, Spencer, and hell, this is the longest answer to a very short question that you asked me, but when I didn't play aggressively, I sucked. I, I, I just, I had to make aggressive swings. I could make conservative or more conservative plays off tees with three woods and things like that. And when I got older, I was much, much better at that. But hell, if I got tried to guidey or steery, Spence, I was terrible. I mean, it just was. I'd be terrible at my muni. I, I, you know, that's just not that's not in my nature. I mean, I think that's the right answer, though, that anybody should be thinking, because like one of the things that I feel like a lot of players do is obviously these majors are hard to get into. It's not a guarantee that everybody's going to play it. We, guys like Rom and DJ and all those players like they, they're spoiled for what they have. And, 
you know, you have these other guys that are not participating every single week in these or every single year in these majors. So I feel like a lot of times these guys just play a little too conservatively and don't give themselves a chance to win. So from like a game theory standpoint, I think it makes complete sense that you go for it and you try to be aggressive and you use the opportunity to get as much out of it as you can. And that style either obviously lends to upside if everything is clicking or you put yourself in a little bit more risk doing it. But I think that makes logical sense. Yeah. Plus nobody gives a damn if you finish 20th, really. It's nice for your bank account, but I never tried to finish 20th. I didn't care about that either. Got to remember guys back in the day, the PGA championship allowed 60 to 70 PGA of America pros in there. It was the weakest field by far in golf. It's still, in my opinion, is one of the weaker fields in golf. And then the U S open and the British open are all qualified. I mean, Guys, you're you've got 30 to 50 badass tour players not in the field at each British and the US Open every single year. That's just the way it is. Half the field is 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 qualifying in both of those events and you know, you know how one day of golf is, hell anything could happen. Yeah, I mean there's not a huge difference between the 51st ranked or the 50th ranked player in the world and the 150th ranked player in the world. So one day of golf can change everything i mean and when you're trying to qualify for these tournaments and you're not automatically getting in it just it, it makes kind of a big difference yeah you know spencer people don't understand what the qualifiers are like so you go to a, a tour like if you're playing at muirfield and then you go over to a couple of the courses in ohio there's 120 guys and they take 30 spots uh you go out and shoot eight under par and you pack your bags and go home you know, and people are like, oh, hell, why didn't you make it? I'm like, well, there's nothing really wrong with my game. I shot a pair of 68s. I'm just hanging around with a bunch of really damn good players. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of luck to get into it also. I mean, if somebody goes out and, as you said, you shoot eight under and the rest of the field is 10 over par, it's just, you know, it is what it is. You did your job and it just didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, had a lot of those. <laughs> I don't know about doing my job, but I had a lot of those that didn't work out, but... <laughs> Hell, I tell you what, guys, I, you've never had anybody on the show luckier than I am. I grew up as a caddy. I'm so fortunate. I'm 60 years old. I've never really had a job. I get to still dip my toe in this game a little bit with some PGA Tour Live and my show, hanging out with you guys and stuff. It's the greatest game. It is a societal powerhouse when it comes to charitable giving, charitable generation of, of money for people in need. No sport, it comes close to it. The PGA Tour donates more money every year than MLB, NFL, NHL, and NBA combined. And, and we always will. It's badass. And I'm so proud and so fortunate and so lucky to be part of this circus. That's incredible. I did not know that at all, actually. All those sports combined, good for the PGA. That is, that's awesome. And, and I'm, I'm so happy to have you on and just growing the game. I think like our show you know, we obviously don't have a, a ton of listeners yet. We just started this spring doing this show, but it's growing every single week. And it seems like more people are starting to watch golf. I just think it's great for the game and continuing to, you know, give back to society like that with the PGA. It's just, it's a, it's a badass sport. Like you said, I love it. Yeah. The PGA tour. Yeah. It's just great. It's, it's great. When I was playing the tour guys, nobody really gave a shit too much. You know what I mean? You know, and Tiger changed everything. Tiger made it cool. Tiger, you know, Tiger talks about being multiracial. You know, he opened doors that were ridiculous. It was ridiculous that they were closed, but they were. So he opened all those things up. And now look at where we're going. I mean, it's just fantastic. Basically, guys, the PGA Tour is the world tour now. It's nor it's it's the PGA Tour's response to Norman wanting to start the world tour way back when. And that's that because of that 
threat to the tour. The tour created the World Golf Championships, and now we got this. It's just awesome. You get all these great players playing together. Man, so be it. Best player wins. 74 still beats 75 every damn day. It doesn't matter who did it, and it's the most honest game there is, and I love it. 100%. One thing that you uh, you said that kind of made me laugh, I just played – I'm not, like, super good at golf by any means. I'm like an eight-and-a-half handicap right now. Can't hit driver very well, but – I played at La Hinch two years ago, just for, we were on vacation with my fiance's family. They're all um, of Irish descent. So we went over there and after the first hole, like it's beautiful day, tee off. I did hit the first fairway, but down there, I don't know if you've ever played La Hinch. I there was, there was not, thing, so. oh, it, it's so beautiful. You're right there on the cliffs and everything, but there is not a flat lie on those fairways. Like the ball was one foot below my, my, uh, my feet on the fairway. I was like, what the hell is going on? Like I got punished for hitting a fairway. So I can't imagine how, these courses are for an open, but on the second hole, out of nowhere, weather comes in. It just starts pouring rain, had to be 40 mile an hour winds. I hit a ball, I swear. And I kind of had like a steep baseball swing at the time. Cause I, you know, that's my background. I had like a wedge that went up and the ball came back and landed uh, behind me. It was the most insane thing. So I just sit there and, and pull over. Um, I'm in a cart. I have a caddy with me. And he goes, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm going to wait for this rain to go. He's like, if you stop now, you're never going to get back on the course. Like these guys just play in that type of weather. That's probably how the open is going to be. I know the Scottish open, there was rain that last day, you know, without lightning, they were going to play the whole damn time. So it's just insane. And you were talking about how the game is just much different over there. And the courses just punish you. The weather will punish you. But I know that will kind of lead into Spencer's question here about Royal St. George's. But when you were saying that, I was like, I hated golf that day, but I was just having so much fun because how beautiful that course was. And it's like, I'm, I'm probably not going back to Ireland anytime soon. It was, it was a little hinge, but yeah, it was absolutely insane. And to see what the pros do, like you said, hitting singers, hitting these low balls that can kind of, you can shape them around these courses. The good players can, at least I sure as hell can't, but yeah, I just have so much respect for these golfers and everybody in the field that can do that. It just blows my mind. Yeah. It's, it's a it's an entirely different brand of golf over there, boys. It, the weather is a gigantic factor. Yeah, and before we get you out of here, you know we're gonna want to get some Open Championship picks from you. And as we've talked about creativity, short game, the ability to play and win, all of that helps with link style golf. But is there anything I didn't mention or we haven't talked about yet that you will be honing into your research looking at this tournament? And based on that answer, do you have any early leans for the Open Championship of who you think? might find success and ultimately might win. Yeah. Who's your lad broke's long shot. If uh, Irish Johnny's taking Jay Delsing at plus 500 to finish top 20, who's our guy this week. If Irish John was still alive, I'd call him <laughs> and see what he think, but I know he's not. There's no damn way he could still be around. Um, so first of all, betting on golf is insane, right? And where, where we're going, they think in the next five years, golf will overtake the NFL in popularity and betting. Because you can bet on every single shot. There's going to be live odds. It's extremely exciting. However, okay, so I picked the winner of the last – I picked Morikawa and Rom, which is – how many majors is that? Six or seven. So I picked two of the last seven major winners. And, guys, prior to that, I'm 0 for 300. <laughs> I mean, I haven't picked one. I mean, it. so here's what I will say. I believe, and I'm extremely partial to the red, white, and blue. I will say if the weather gets really dicey, windy wise, there's only a handful of Americans that'll handle it. Okay. The Euros are so much better suited for that because they just see those conditions so much more often. Now, 
so far the weather's been pretty benign and it comes in like you said nick it comes in it goes it's a, but what i but what i would say is if they're going to get fresh breezes which fresh breezes means 30 miles an hour over there i there's a there's a handful of Americans that that are good win players. Kepka's a pretty good win player. Uh, Spieth is a pretty good win player. Gary Woodland's a pretty good win player. But there's not our our guys just typically don't make those adjustments because you can't play the ball on the ground over here, and we don't get that many. Look, we're playing where it's sunshine and lollipops every day, eighty degrees, and the courses look like you know. You're in a zoo. They're perfect. You know, go over there and it's going to be brown. The, the courses, if, if they haven't had any rain, boys, the, 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 the golf courses look like hell. They look like a Trisket. You know, it's brown. It's crappy. <laughs> it bounces all over the place. If it's been wet, then the grass will be, then you'll start getting some of the, you know, the four foot high fescue and all the other stuff that you see over there. So I, I, I will say this. I love watching what Bryson DeChambeau is doing right now. First of all, it's the most unnatural way to play golf that I've ever seen. It's just, and I know, hell, I'm 60 years old. I'm, it's, it's, I'm old, but I, I'm glued to it because I played in 06. I was 47 years old at the, in the U.S. Open, and I played Wingfoot. And if you were going to tell me that you could take that sort of strategy and muscle that golf course, I'd see, I'd be like, good luck, book a flight out on Friday. You're not going to be around. And what he did was incredible. And, and, and I've met him several times. This kid is so smart and, but he uses it in a way that doesn't make him stupid. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not overthinking a bunch of stuff. And what else I got to tell you guys He's the bravest golfer I know. None of this shit he's doing had to work, boys. Gaining all that weight, going for the speed. You, to talk about the level of commitment that he has and the hard work that he's put in, ridiculous. Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Outnumbers everybody except Tiger, I'll say, when it comes to working hard. And so I love to see him win. I love to see someone in the, in the red, white, and blue. Uh, and I got some questions I want to ask you guys too, but you can cut, drop me off whenever you want to. But no, no so, so I know he's the favorite. And I don't like betting on the favorites. John Rahm is playing great and played the European tour and, and he's got enough power to, uh, to, to handle that. Justin Thomas, I'm waiting for him to kind of rebound from some of the, the whole debacle in Hawaii and kind of get himself uh, righted because he's, he's a great guy and he's one of the guys on the U.S. Ryder Cup team, you guys, that people will look for inside that room for some help, some stability, some encouragement. There's just not that. No, nobody's going to look to Brooks Kepka. Nobody's going to look to Bryson DeChambeau. Nobody's going to look to DJ. These guys don't have that. Uh, uh, JT has that. He'll speak and people will turn and listen. So those are, uh, uh, and I'm a gigantic Jordan Spieth fan, and I know I just reeled off, you know, the kind of the best U.S. players. Sleeper picks, um, you know, Harris English has been playing great. Harris English has been playing great, and typically, guys, the guys that are playing that play well, are, that go into these things playing well, continue to play well. The problem with St. George's is it lends itself to outliers. You know, the Ben Curtises, the. Uh, I, and I don't want to say that Darren Clark was an outlier, but Darren Clark kind of came out of nowhere to win his uh, Open Championship. And I got to tell you another thing, guys. Even Greg Norman, 
as great a career as he had, he didn't win much. And no one expected, at least me, no one and the guys that I was hanging around with didn't expect him to win there. And so I, I think if you start looking at the, at the what I would say is look in the middle third of the field and someone kind of out of that grouping is going to come, come away and, and have uh, a good tournament and, 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 and challenge and maybe even win. You know, it's funny, before you came on, Nick and I were talking a little bit just about this venue and, and from a statistical standpoint and what we're trying to look for and what we're trying to find. And one of the things I mentioned when I was giving my course breakdown for it is I always run everything from a current form, course history, uh, statistical breakdown. So all of those things have a different weight level that I put into it. One of the highest grades I've ever given to current form, which is what you were saying about Harris English, I'm weighing current form very heavily. I mean, when we look at this tournament, it does seem like guys that are playing well are the ones that do well in the Open Championship. That seems to be something guys that have event history at the Open Championship seem to go well with it. Like, that makes me worry about a guy like Morikawa, maybe when it comes to winning the tournament because it is his first time getting that Open Championship links experience with it. But... With all of that being said, you know, if the conditions do remain a little bit more benign, I think a guy like Morikawa's irons do come into play. I think, as you mentioned with Thomas, his irons come into play. I think that the course becomes a little bit more suited, the, the less wind we can get for a tournament like this. And as far as wind play goes, uh, in my model, which is run over a two-year sample size from a strokes gain perspective, Jordan Spieth is the number one player in this field in strokes gained in moderate to severe wind conditions. So I love where your head's at there with Spieth. And surprisingly with Bryson, he's ninth in my model over that time frame. And I don't know if that's necessarily something people give credit to for Bryson, but I agree. Like he comes up with a game plan. He came up with a game plan at Wingfoot. When it works, it looks brilliant. When it doesn't work, sometimes he does find himself in a position where he it's a little stubborn to break off of that mold that he's trying to do, but he at least has a game plan for every single event that he plays. So I don't know if it's going to work. You know, I don't know if he's going to try to drive some of these par fours, but I don't think enough people are discussing the upside that he actually possesses to win this tournament. Like if he can put it all together, Bryson can come and win this tournament where really nobody's talking about him. There's no question, Spencer. And here's another guy that you need to have on your board somewhere. Louis Ustazen. You've got to have him on your board somewhere. Any time there's a major, put him in. This guy swings beautifully. With a little luck, he'd probably knock off three or four of these damn things already. And he's only got one, and that was ages ago. But the guy is a machine, and he's unfazed. No stage is too big for him. Um, I want to say another thing about Bryson uh, Spencer that you know he's in a really elite group. There's only three players that have won the USAM, the US Open, and the NCAA Championship. The first guy is Jack. The second guy is Tiger. And the third guy is Bryson. It's uh, it's pretty pretty remarkable. Uh, that's pretty tall cotton. Yeah, and I think Bryson's revolutionizing this game the way that Tiger did, which kind of with what you were saying with it. And, and I just think Bryson's game travels better than people think with it. Like, sure, he's going to have some volatility to him, but – when you're trying to find an outright victor, that's kind of what you're looking for. Like he might not be the best person in a head-to-head bet. You may want to avoid him there, but in an outright market with the drift that he's getting at this point, he's over 30 to one at most books at this point. Like, I don't think it's the worst idea to put, you know, a little sprinkle on him and and hope that good Bryson shows up and the formula works correctly. Well, I will tell you this, Spence, if the good Bryson shows up, it'll be a big victory. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like what he did at Wingfoot. He just lapped the field and, and that's the that's what he's uh, 
that's what he's got that nobody else has, right? He's got that potential. Now the Tiger's not in the in the field where, uh, you know, when we, when we were playing against Tiger, it was like playing poker, boys, when somebody that got all, all four aces every hand, you know, and all of a sudden Spencer goes, look at I got four queens. You're like, damn, that's a really good hand, but you still lose to the four aces. And then Nick <laughs> goes, hey, I got four kings. I'm like, yeah, good, good, good for you. And you still just, man, you, you came in second, you know, but that that's what Bryson possesses. And he's, he's sneaky guys with all aspects of his game. I'm going to say this. I'm betting in the near future, Bryson comes off of his 60 being the same length as his other clubs. And he's go, he'll, he'll get something that's a little heavier. So the, so the weights aren't so crazy, but I bet he's going to go to a shorter uh, 60 or 58, whatever he's using, just because it can make him even that much better. Yeah. If he gets those short iron proximities a little bit better, as you're saying, like the game's over at that point if Bryson puts everything together. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the crazy thing is, is the kid putts really well mm-hmm. and looks like hell putting it looks like he's so uncomfortable that, that arm lock you know yeah. that arm lock and and uh yeah but it's 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 going to be fun i love the british open because you wake up and go oh hell you know we're halfway through coverage you know and you got it all taped and it's uh it's an it's an absolute blast uh the golf over there guys is nothing you've ever seen it's so crazy and it had a gigantic influence on pete Dye. You know, and Pete Dye has built some really insane golf courses over here. And the, and if you look at some of the features at some of the 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 holes and the courses in the uh, the rotation for the British Open have, it's they're bizarro. You know, there's some just some bizarre stuff. I mean, there there's several holes at Carnoustie where you're standing out 50 yards in front of the green and you have no idea where the green is. You know, you're looking at a gigantic face of a bunker or just a hill that they just plop the hill right in front of you because they didn't move much dirt back then, you know? So uh, it's always fun uh, to, to, to get the watch and to, to see what just unfolds. I love it, man. That, that is awesome. Now, uh, do you have any questions for us? You said you had a couple. Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you, you guys this. So um, when you're bet, so are you, do you guys favor more of the head to head bets? Do you favor more of, uh, who's going to win? How do you guys like to bet? And then oh. I've got a stat I want to drop on you. And I wonder, Spencer, it sounds like you're in the weeds on this. You may already know this about the Masters, but I wanted to hear what you guys had to say first. Yeah, I'll, I'll lead it off there, Spencer. So I know me personally, what if, like you said, betting outrights, you were over 300 at one point. Like that is, I feel like most people that are new to golf are like, all right, I'm going to pick five guys, hope they win 10x my bankroll if it happens. But it's not sustainable, in my opinion. And we're here to kind of educate people. Um, Spencer's a, a, a full-time better. I used to work for a sports book and well, so like, I know how to price everything and, you know, decently I'm still, you know, it's golf. Like you said, anybody could have a great day. There's no formula to guaranteed winners. But for me personally, what I found that it's also fun, you know, we do it responsibly and everything like that. But for me personally, it is, is uh, betting on people to finish in the top 40. You see a lot of prices, you, you price check a lot of different sports books. You'll see, you know, for example, this week, Carlos Ortiz is one of the guys that I like to finish top 40 on FanDuel. He's two to two to one to finish top 40. So, you know, I bet a dollar, I get two back, but on Giraffe Kings, he is plus three thirty. So three and a third to one. I like, it's just significant. I'm getting a whole dollar and 30 cents more of value on DraftKings. So that's kind of how I like to teach people how to bet is find a guy that you like that fits all the course metrics that you're personally looking for. 
And then the top 40 is just so less volatile. And it's something that I continually built my bankroll on that way. And then Spencer, I'll let you get into it with head to heads and, and everything else that you do. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the same answer I would give. I mean, one of the things that we've always preached on this show, we've been doing it for about three months. I think the worst wager you can make in the market is a futures wager on an outright ticket. It's just way too volatile. You're throwing darts at the board and a lot of times that's the market that's priced with the most hold percentage. So the casinos are holding more money on those wagers than on a head-to-head bet or a top 40. So my favorite bet is typically a head-to-head wager. I seem to find the most value there. I think the top 40 market is uh, Nick's model is built extremely well for something like that. That's something that I like. Sometimes I play it a little bit uh, deeper into like a top 30, a top 20. And then one of the bets that I really like because I have a um, a model that I put in a lot of the the pre-tournament research and then the in-tournament stats that mold out uh, a ranking list for me and some odds with it. I love in-tournament head-to-head bets. That's probably my favorite wager of the week that I find myself most heavily invested in. But for the most part, it's it's very little in the outright market. We'll sprinkle a little bit here and there. It's fun to have some exposure, but from, you know, it's probably the worst bet that can be made. And then all your head to heads, all your top 40s, that's really where you butter your bread with that. So guys, I had Stuart Sink on the show a while back and we talked about horses for courses, right? So that, that is definitely something to keep in mind. And when you play in the British, there's not a whole lot of horses for courses. You don't get to play that 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 very often. But um, it, 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 the next thing as a player, when you're playing well, you have this tendency to run and you and you run in these streaks. So guys, and you probably know this, but every single tour player makes 80% of his money in six events. This is a game of streaks. When you're making putts, you keep your foot on the gas and you have to keep moving forward. Every every birdie you make down the, down the stretch uh, pays you double for the bogey that you make. So it's well worth it to be super aggressively, play super aggressively down the stretch. And the last thing I want to say is when you get to the Masters, 80% of the winners at at Augusta come from the top 16 players in the world. Think about that. Augusta is the most predictable venue to play, to gamble, period. And the least predictable is the TPC of Jacksonville. Anybody wins there. Look at the – you get Tiger, you get my buddy Craig Perks, who's a great guy from, from New Zealand but didn't play much to a guy like Fred Funk. You, you and Stephen Ames, you get crazy names that win down there because the golf course in Jacksonville is so demanding, both left to right, right to left shots. The greens are insane. You can't drink enough to keep your head on your shoulders that week. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and, and as you said, like Augusta is the number one tournament for me when I'm looking at course history stats. Like that, I'll weigh that as heavily as like 40% on a week like that. And it's, you know, you get a field of 90 players or whatever it exactly is. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're going to have your top end guys and it. Sure, you have the guys that are returning champions, but you play the tournament every single year. These guys know they're coming back. They know the holes like the back of their hands. So there's just so many predictable, uh, you know, quantities that you can find from a handicapping perspective and from these guys. I mean, you kind of just know what to expect from them, as you said. The, the other thing you have to remember, it is the only place that they return to every year for a major, right? And that's why the, the national messes with them so much where they'll add a little here, they'll put a mound here, they'll take this tree in, they'll put it out. 
They do all of that stuff. But what's really interesting from a mental perspective, guys, is every single person in the field knows where the flag sticks are going to be. They don't go out, you know, out on ledges and try new things. They just don't do that very often there. And it's the ultimate mind screw for a player because, you know, on, you know, they may they may take the you know, the front right hole location on 16. And, and instead of doing it on Friday, they might do it on Saturday. But who cares what day? It's all the fact that the matter is, you know where it's going to be. You know where to play from. You know where not to miss. And then it becomes a part of, can you be mentally strong enough and execute? And hell, that's hard. I, I don't want to sidetrack us too much from the open championship conversation, but I, I actually would like to ask you, what do you think Bryson's problem is at the Masters? Like, why is it not working? Oh, uh, well, I, I think he, I think he needs to be better around the green Spencer. I think he needs to be plus uh, strike that comment from last year. He drove the ball like an idiot last year. He hit it straight sideways, right? Hooking and slicing. I mean, he had a horrible week with his driver. That's one of the things that he doesn't do guys is that if he's not hitting his driver, well, he doesn't back off. Yes. Right. Let's say, oh, man, I'm out on the range and all my hooks are fading and all my fades are hooking. I'm going to back off and I'm going to figure out a way to get myself in play to give myself. But he doesn't do that. Yeah, at, least that's not, at least not yet. Yeah, he sticks to a plan and, and he doesn't seem to deviate away from it. That's his biggest flaw he has in his game. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to see what you said about his uh, his short wedges there, because when you look at his stats, he gains almost a shot or a half a shot half a stroke in every single metric besides around the green. He's still positive in strokes and around the green, but by far that is, it's like 80% less than any other metric he has. So the day that that comes to fruition, if it is maybe just a change in the wedge or something, he is going to be absolutely scary out there. Guys, think of it this way too. He's a sledgehammer. I'm hammering this thing. It's hard and it's powerful every single time, right? That's great off the tees. That's great when you're hitting your five iron, 250 yards, or however the hell long the guy hits it. But when you're over a 30-yard shot and you only have a sledgehammer, it doesn't work. You need a little ball-peen hammer. You need some touch and finesse, and we need some precision. We need to hit this just right. And I think that's where he'll I, – I think uh, – I, I don't know why I'm even saying this because he knows this way better than I do, and he researches it like crazy. But that's where I think he'll he'll make an adjustment because – he needs he needs to be more precise. Well, I just Jay, can't imagine swinging a sixty degree. Sorry, no, I can't imagine swinging a damn sixty degree wedge with a you know with the length of my six iron shaft to be like this thing could go anywhere. I've held one at the PGA Superstore and it is the weirdest thing you'll ever see. I'm not as tall as Bryce neither, but it, it is it is goofy. I don't know how he does it. Yeah, what do you guys think about the Bryson and the Kepka whole? Uh, you think it's just all for the for the Q? The Q rating, or do you think they're uh, actually uh, ticked at each other? And then what's it going to look like for – I had Strick on my show a while back. What's it going to look like for Captain Stricker to have those two knuckleheads in the room <laughs> acting like idiots towards each other? I'll let Spencer take that one. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of think a lot of what Kepka does is for show. Like, we see him in these interviews, and even this week when he's just talking about the Open Championship, he hasn't played since the Travelers' Championship. His knee's always bothering him. There's always an excuse of some kind – then he goes and he wins the tournament and nothing came of it. So I don't know. I, I don't really take what Kepka says at face value. I'm sure there's a little bit of distaste or disdain between the two of them to some extent, but I, 
I don't know. I mean, you put in this PIP money and all of that. And I think that there may be a little bit of a show going on that they're they're trying to garner a little bit of traction. I like it. I think you're right. Jay, I got two questions for you kind of off the record here, uh, off cool. the off the trail. All right. If you were to have. I live off the trail. You're perfect. Good. All right. I, I like it. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I love golf, everything. I like to have a beer, too, when I'm out there. If you were to have a beer with one guy on tour, whether it's now or in your air when you were playing on the PGA, who would it be? Oh, man, that's a great one. That's a great question. Well, first of all, I had the honor of getting to play with AP three times. Oh, that's awesome. Arnold Palmer is the man. That's all there is to it. The stories, the the dash. This guy was 60, 70 years old. You guys, he looked like he was 40 still. And he just had this charisma. I said to him, every I, I can remember you sitting on a tractor and I'm in this our little bitty house I grew up in on a crappy 13-inch black and white TV. And I hear this guy sell, sitting on a tractor selling car oil or something. And, it, and they turned my head then. And I said, how did you do that? I said, it was almost like you had a relationship with the entire country at the same time. How did you do that? And he goes, I just never did anything I didn't believe in. And I just wanted people to know that I believed in it. But that's easy to say, guys. But that's not easy to pull off. People are cynical and, you know, especially more nowadays. But Arnold was the best. Fuzzy Zeller is a, a ball. John Daly is a, a, a <laughs> great guy to 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 go see. You know the you know what is the best about John Daly? He's the most authentic dude you guys have ever met. He will just tell you like this. Yeah, shit, I lost five hundred fifty thousand dollars last night in that stupid roulette game. I got, or you know, <laughs> and you're like, huh? You know what well, you you did what? And 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 then you sit there like, hey, I, I'll take a cheeseburger too. It, he's just saying he's not. <laughs> He's not blowing smoke. He's not trying to get attention. He just is authentic like that. Um, back in the older days, though, guys, there would have been um, – uh, I, I would have just liked to, be, to meet Hogan. I heard he was an asshole. I, I don't – I, I, I want to judge all everybody on my own accord and when I meet them. And to, to have somebody that um, – the, the, there's a couple of funny stories about some of the old guys. Sneed and Hogan didn't like one another, I guess, right? And so – they're playing in the finals of, I don't know if it's an open U.S. Open or a PGA when the PGA used to be um, match play. And uh, so Hogan got to go into the press room before Sneed, and and I guess Hogan won the tournament. And uh, he said, yeah, guys, I, I hit it so good in the afternoon that I played out of my divots from the morning round. And when Sneed got in there and he said, yeah, you know, I just don't get that. If he's that good, why wouldn't he miss his divots? You know, and they just do stuff like that that were just just funny. I got to play with Lee Trevino and Chichi Rodriguez. Now, here's a Mexican guy and a Puerto Rican guy. And this is not a racial uh, story by any means, but it's just funny. And it meets it, it worked with our time. And I'm going to tell it to you just because it's it's funny. So. <laughs> Lee Trevino would talk the entire time you're out there, not for your benefit, for his benefit. It relaxed him. He was comfortable doing that. So he'd be chirping all their dip. Tri- and Chichi Rodriguez never took a backseat to anyone. He was super respectful. This guy was a ball hitter, but he could swing into a phone booth, guys. His, his club went up in the back and it looped around, but he hit the ball like you've never seen. Just straight and solid all the time. 
walking down the fairway. And Lee, you know, when you go to the tour event, guys, how they'll have the Porter Johns kind of put together in a little hoop over here and put a fence around it or something. And, and the Lee's talking and talking. He looks at Cheech and he goes, hey, Cheech, look over there. And he points to the Johns. He goes, Puerto Rican condominiums. <laughs> You know, and 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 uh, they take a few more steps, and uh, and Cheech goes, you know, what's cool about that, Lee. We rent the basements to the Mexicans, <laughs> and they both laughed so hard. You guys, it wasn't oh, racial. Great. It wasn't like, oh, you don't like my nationality. It's two competitors just not letting the other guy get one up on them. You know what I mean? Just really fun, R- really fun stuff. That's amazing. All right, last question for you. Um, just wanted to know, are you playing Ascension this year, the Charity Classic? I am. It? I'm so excited. I haven't played an event, I don't know how long, probably five or six years. I had my knee replaced in November, uh, and I just my body just is kind of breaking down, but I am I get to play. The, the coolest thing, guys, it's so badass. I, this probably will be my last event. I get to play on my home course where I grew up caddying. It's called Norwood Hills Country Club. It's yep. in North County. I grew up in North County. All of this charitable dollar that we raise, uh, raise here all stays in the North County area. It, it's like somebody punked me. I thought my brother made this up and called me, and, 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 and it's just it couldn't be better. There's no place both good and bad on this golf course I haven't been. I've hit my ball in the swimming pool, and I've stuck it up in trees, and I've, I also have the course record. Everything. It's like a whiteboard. Anything could happen. But I'm really excited and it's going to be extremely emotional for me because, I, you know, I've been caddying around that joint since, you know, 1973. And I'm a member now. It's it's really going to be cool. It's going to be a great field. Uh, I hope Philly Mick decides to come. Um, Ascension is a rock star sponsor. It's the place that when you watch it on TV, boys, it's going to look like a tour event. It's amazing how the corporate citizens in St. Louis have really shown up. It's it's going to be something. Yeah, if you guys are in the Midwest, that tournament, I believe, is uh, September 9th through the 12th, right? I think it's, yeah, 6th through the 12th is the whole week. But, yeah, we've okay. sold out the Pro-Am on Thursday. There's still some Pro-Am opportunities on Wednesday. Jack Nicholas is coming in town July 29th to to host a luncheon with Tom Watts. I mean, who gets to do that? I mean, I can't wait for that. I mean, just getting to talk to Jack Nicholas and watching Jack play, that's I, I got to play with him. And, I, you know, it's weird when you get to play with your boyhood idols, you know, where you're like, I'm playing with who today? You know, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty fun. Yeah. That's, that's what that, I told you. I'm so lucky. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to get tickets to that. I think my brother-in-law and I are going to go. And then a lot of my buddies from St. Louis, they love your show on ESPN 101 every Sunday morning. Like I told you when I leave, uh, when I go see my parents, I usually leave Sunday morning to get home, finish golf. And uh, I listen to the show every week, so I greatly oh appreciate gosh. it, Jay. You're, you're, a, you. you're a legend, man. I, I oh greatly gosh, appreciate your so time. True. I got to tell you real quickly, I had Rick Ankiel on this last Sunday. Oh, that's Guys, awesome. Guys, we talked, no athlete's ever been so real and down to earth about getting the yips. And this poor kid was 19 years old and it plays yep. out on national television. And he was awesome. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. He said at one point, guys, where he he was so afraid to let go of this ball because he didn't know where it was going to go that he almost had like a blackout. He said he couldn't feel his hand at all. And when he opened his eyes, he didn't know if he threw the ball over the back back screen or the backstop or 10 feet in front of him. And I'm like, I had the yips before. And I said, walking down the fairway trying to hold my putter was like, it's going to fly out of my hand. 
You know, you just get the craziest stuff that runs through your head. And I've never heard any athlete be so candid about it. It was, I, I, I've, I've got so many friends calling me like, that dude, I can't believe how, not, you know, it's so real how, how he just talked about how hard it was. And, and um, I, I, my hat's off to Rick Ankiel, man. He was very cool. Yeah, and that comeback, he had to come back and be a, a very special player in the outfield. Man, he had an absolute hose just throwing people out everywhere. That, he, that was awesome to watch. And he could really hit the ball, too. Just a fantastic athlete. Guys, check this out. Two people in the history of MLB have hit 70 home runs um, and started a playoff game, both as a pitcher and an outfielder, and won 10 games uh, as a starting pitcher. And one guy's name's Babe Ruth. That's what I was going to guess. Probably Babe. And the other cat is Rick Ankiel. That's, That's awesome. a pretty cool neighborhood to hang out with. Now what Otani's doing, although I don't think the Angels will ever make it to the playoffs. We're going to have to do some about face, but that's pretty fun to watch too. Yeah, it's special what he's doing. Sorry for jamming you up, guys. Thanks no. so much for having Thank me so on. Much, it's been, yeah, it's been fun. Just keep doing what you're doing. The podcast is fun. The betting part, I don't know. It's a, it's just, it's, it's, I admire you Spencer for doing it, getting in the weeds on all the numbers and, and it, it, it makes it, it gives you something to hang your hat on when you're making picks. I just hope you don't, I hope you make a bunch of money. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure and honor to talk to you. And uh, we obviously would like to have you back anytime. Oh man. Anytime I'll come back. on. I owe you a round of golf too. Next time I'm in the area and we're playing. I don't don't roll like that. That (laughs) You just got to give me, you got to give me six aside. I'm not doing that either. I don't even know what you play. Like I, I, I I gave so many shots today. It was like, I was in a doctor's office. I'm like, what is going on here? How many, how many, what is your handicap? And then I get all these guys that are like yourself, eight, nine, and they shoot. Oh, I had a really good day, 72. I'm like, I can't do that. (laughs) Lousy handicappers. All right, guys. Thanks Thanks so much. Yeah, all the best. Yeah, take take care. care. Bye-bye. That was Jay Delsing, former PGA player. Man, those that was that was badass. He's he's electric. He just like my mood so much better just hearing him talk and all those cool stories. Like that, that was awesome. Yeah, he's brilliant. That was a great interview. And, uh, you know, obviously, anytime he wants to come back, I'd love to have him on. He was a wealth of information. And that was just great. Yeah, no, I mean, and having a beer with John Daly, and maybe I, I would probably limit myself after a couple thousand on roulette, but to lose half a million roulette and just be cool about it. That's John Daly. You can't get that anywhere else. That is awesome. Uh, let's get back to the Open Championship real quick. We'll speed it up here. I got a couple top 40s. Not a very big card for me, but man, I'm just pumped up. That was that was so awesome. Jay's awesome. Um, if you guys are in the St. Louis area or somewhere in the Midwest, that Ascension tournament, I believe Phil is going to be there. At least that's what the rumors are right now. He's on the billboards in St. Louis, so I hope he shows up. But all right, real quick, I did mention Carlos Ortiz Spencer. I had him priced at plus one eighty five. DraftKings has him at plus three thirty. FanDuel has him at plus two hundred. So a good difference in value there on DraftKings. Another one for me is uh, like almost everybody's a bomb this week just for the pricing. I, I really didn't love the top of the field, top 40 wise. I think like my exposure to these great golfers, like guys we talked about earlier, obviously Bryson at 30 to one. I think it's 33 to one was the outright that I got on him. But Brendan Steele plus 360 on FanDuel. I had him priced at plus 220. So I found 140 points of value there. I don't know if I like that as much as just a guy that kind of scares me, but he did pop off for, you know, plus strokes gained around the green approach and off the tee. That's something that I value a ton. I didn't put a whole lot of win statistics in there. Maybe that's something you can kind of talk me on or off. 
Then a Euro guy, Matt Wallace. I just love betting this guy. I got him priced at plus 170 or plus 120. I'm sorry. And then DraftKings has him at plus 175. And FanDuel's got him at plus 160. So if you like Matt Wallace, he should be familiar with this type of golf. I found 55 points of value there on DraftKings. Keegan Bradley is a guy my model absolutely loves. I, I'm not a Keegan guy. I've talked about this before. But I, I do back him a lot. It seems like my model always likes him. I know he let us down uh, two tournaments ago when we played him. But I had him priced at minus 125. He is top 10 in my model, which was very scary to see. DraftKings has him at plus 175. FanDuel has him at plus 165. So DraftKings, again, is getting my business with Keegan Bradley. And then bomb of the week. Here we go. I do not know much about this guy, but right when I saw his numbers come out on my weights and, and everything in the model, I started watching him. And this dude, like watching some film on him, he hits the absolute piss out of the ball. Uh, he's got a really cool swing. I like Ryan Fox. I priced him at plus 280, I believe it was. DraftKings has him at 4 to 1 plus 400 and FanDuel has him at plus 360 so DraftKings again is the place to go if you want to ride the bomb of the week Ryan Fox I believe he just finished 44th at the Scottish Open Spencer I will let you correct me if I'm wrong there and then jo- Joaquin Neiman I didn't find a price yet um but that was something that we were talking about earlier and I remembered how much I liked him in my preliminary studies this weekend but thoughts on Carlos Ortiz Brendan Steele, Matt Wallace, Keegan Bradley, and Ryan Fox. And one quick thought, Brendan Grace, have you seen this guy's odds this week? He is like, the action on him is insane. He's got usually like a guy that's like plus 250 to finish top 40. He was minus a buck 10, I believe, unanimously on every single sports book. So thoughts on those guys again, Brendan Steele, Matt Wallace, Keegan Bradley, Carlos Ortiz, Ryan Fox, and just your overall thoughts on Brendan Grace, just because like the price is like, it was scary. I had him priced at like two to one. I was like, okay, maybe he's going to be around three to one. I'll play him. I know I like him in the win, but minus one ten for Brendan Grace. I'll start with Grace actually because I think Grace is an interesting player this week because you know I, I have Brooks's value in the outright market, and this is a little bit different than the top forty here. I have Cantlay as value. I have Day as value. I mentioned I have Spieth and Reed. The three guys that are a little bit lower that I had as value as an outright ticket were Sergio Neiman and Grace. So. I kind of like Grace in all markets. I think you're going to get some level of volatility with him, but I don't have a problem with playing him. He's not necessarily, I usually don't play these guys in the minus 110 sort of range on these things. I think it's an open championship. There's a little bit more volatility. If a wave split hits the wrong way, for some reason you could run into problems with it, but we know that he has a game that can play on link style courses. He is a seventh place at the U S open fourth at Memorial. He's coming in with good form. So you know, if there's somebody a little bit lower down the board that I think can actually win the tournament, it might be Grace. This might just be the time where, you know, we saw it with, you know, a guy like Louie where Louie didn't win for a little bit and then Louie won the Open Championship and obviously hasn't won since there on the PGA Tour. But I think Grace has a chance to, to find success. We, he has a win this year already. So I kind of like Grace uh, in all markets. I was trying to find a head-to-head on him. I wasn't able to find one that I loved. Neiman, for me, is just an insane value across the board pretty much like he has his miscut here in 2019 he's still a young kid I'm not going to hold that against him from a statistical perspective he's 15th for me Brian Fox I don't have a lot of information on the one thing I will say is that he's second in my model in driving distance behind Bryson I think anytime you can have a particular skill set like that like you know I don't know if that's I think total driving is probably a little bit more important than pure distance from it but 46, 39th, 49th, and three of his last four trips at the Open. 
as a four to one golfer, like technically yeah, three losses there and one that would have resulted in a dead heat. So he's not necessarily paying off the value at four to one, but as I've said a million times with your model, your model is so much more zoned in and tuned into the European market than mine is that you're able to find a lot of these guys where it's like the Chan Kim effect. You find guys <laughs> that are just, you know, on the Asian tour or the European tour or wherever they are, where you're finding value that I don't think the rest of the industry is. So I don't have a bunch to say about him from a value perspective. I, if you like him, then that's good enough for me. <laughs> Let's um, go. 6,600 on DraftKings too. And then Brandon Grace was 7,200. Grace will be very popular, um, but probably an absolute stone cold lock for me in cash games and small field GPPs. If you need salary saving, just go there. But I think Ryan Fox is going to be my 1% known single entry uh, hill that I die on. We'll see what happens, but I'm trusting it. It's like you said, it is kind of the Chan Kim thing. I didn't know anything about Ryan Fox till two days ago. So let's get after it. Three or four made cuts since 2015. I mean, that's really all you can ask for, for a guy that's $6,600 and going to be 1% owned. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, Keegan Bradley showed up statistically as a great value for me when it just came from a statistical analysis perspective. You know, I guess the biggest concern I have with him is the open championship has been a little helter skelter week from week. I think that the putter doesn't cooperate. You could run into problem problems with him. I do technically have him as a value at the number that he's at. I didn't punch a ticket. He made my shortlist as a guy I considered. I didn't inevitably go down that route with it. Uh, Wallace is another guy. If your model likes him, that's good enough for me. I, I don't have, obviously he's playing more PGA tour events this season than in the past, but I don't have a bunch of concrete data that I necessarily trust. And then Ortiz is a wager that I also made. I think Ortiz is just really good. His short game's really good. I always seem to fall into this trap with him with, I don't know if it's necessarily worked out at any point, but, um, the approach game is turned around over the last 24 rounds. The short game is 35th in my model. The off the tee game is there. Uh, par four scoring's there. The win play isn't something that's necessarily going to make me not want to get there. And then the worst stat I have on him is sand save percentage. But even if we look at guys like Darren Clark and these guys that have found success at this venue in the past, like if you're getting it into the bunker, it's a stroke penalty. I pretty much for every single player. So I think if you're in the bunker, you're already getting problems with it. I'm looking more at the GIR percentage. If he's not finding the bunker, he'll be fine. And if he is finding the bunker, he's not so horrible that I'm anticipating that this is going to be an absolute meltdown. So Ortiz was a guy. I just thought there was too much value on the number to pass up. Love that. Um, Warrett, how about you, man? What do we got? I Sounds like you're not talking me off of anything this week, so I'm I'm cool with that. And I, I'm like the thing that always sticks with me most when you talk about your guys is the uh, when you run it for safety because top forty mark. That's more like the safety thing, in my opinion. You're not like, and these guys I always play in DFS when you kind of when you tell me they're upside and safety. So if you got any of those guys, that always helps. And uh, I've been having a lot of lineup success because of that. So. You're the brains behind my lineups most weeks because I won't punch them without you signing off on them. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That's a lot of credit. I mean, that's that's giving me a little bit too much. I, your your model is, I'd like to think my model is the best. Your model is the best. I mean, like it, our two <laughs> models that we put out, I do think are better than 99.9% of people that do this. And, you know, we're building our own numbers. We're doing our own things. So like, you don't have to look any further than the Sebastian Munoz call that you had last week. Like there's just certain things that I feel like that we're able to talk about. Like I, I mentioned earlier in the show, Munoz was a guy that when I was just trying to find upside, 
he was the perfect first round leader play. And I think it makes sense why he's the first round leader so often. Um, as far as the volatility and the safety goes, I only ran it one way this week. The reason why I did that is from a safety perspective, the model's already kind of built in a safety perspective. I just think that this tournament involves a little bit more luck than a normal week. You have to be on the right side of a, of a wave split with wind. You have to, you know, be on the right side of a bounce. You you can't have something go against your game. So I tried to find guys that weren't going to implode. That's where all the bogey avoidance, the wind play, you know, the sand save percentage, the around the green guys are just not going to implode. So my model kind of is built from a safety perspective, which is I think that the head to heads and the top 40 should be good for that reason. I'm going a little bit more on my own accord here when it goes to outright bets. I kind of just looked at this board of guys I thought that actually had win equity with it. I am looking a little bit at some of the upside stuff. I didn't post it for public consumption, and it's not something that I'm living and dying by. But as far as the safety goes, uh, Ortiz was one of my plays. Stuart Sink at plus 160 on DraftKings, plus 110 on FanDuel. He has three top 36 finishes at the Open over his last four tries. He ranks seventh for me in strokes gain approach over his last 24 rounds. And he's first in par three average over a two-year sample size and third in ball striking. So I think it's a guy who his form, you know, we just heard Jay talk about this, that these guys earn their money during a short duration of time. I think Sink is in form right now, and I don't think yep. we've turned it to the other side yet. And if you look at a guy like Corey Connors, Connors, it's amazing he didn't win a tournament during the time frame that he was top fiving every single tournament. And my model likes him this week, but I'm a little bit afraid that his time might have come and gone. So, I, you know, I have the head-to-head -head bet with Sink that I have this week. I have a top 40 ticket that I punch with him. He's 20th in my model, which, as I said, is kind of a safety perspective with that. So I really like the Sink play. I have Lucas Glover at plus 290 on FanDuel. That's plus 125 on DraftKings. So that's, you know, 165 points there of a difference between the two sites. Top 20 win player in the field over his last 50 rounds. And as I said, just a huge pricing difference. Worry a little bit that he's coming off of the win. I just think at nearly a 3-1 to one number, I, I'm fine taking that chance there. And then the fourth guy I have a top 40 on, you know, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on him right now. I have a very small play. I think this is something that's a little bit more suited in your wheelhouse than mine. I have Guido Migliozzi, plus 225 on DraftKings. Uh, he's plus 155 on FanDuel. I had to hand do a lot of my stats for him because I don't have a lot of sample size from him from pure stats. But, you know, five straight top 35 worldwide finishes. He was 13th in my hand-done model and par for average, 13th in scrambling, 21st in strokes gain approach. I do think there is some miscut potential here, but I'm going to take a shot on the form right now. And I guess on top of that, the second person that I would like to get your thoughts on, because you seem to be better with him than I am. What are your thoughts on Jason Day at plus 100? I know we had him at the Masters and it burned us in this top 40 market, but my model loves him. He's like arguably the best value on the board in any market for me. All right. That's all I need to know. For Guido, I, he is uh, actually some, he will be in my player pool for draftings. I do what I like the most. He graded very, very highly in my simulations for uh, accuracy off the tee and distance off the tee. He seems like he can carry a lot of those fairway bunkers that get you in trouble. So I do like Guido a lot. Seems like his game's in a really good place for a guy we kind of just popped on the scene a couple months ago. Um, Jason Day, the only concern I have, he's great around the green. That's a reason why I always love him. I think that if his back can hold up, he's you know going to be an underpriced guy that can certainly win. He's great off the tee. 
The problem I have with him is the irons, the approach game right now. He is barely gaining a stroke on an iron play compared to like a guy like Webb Simpson gaining 0.34 strokes. Patrick Reed, almost half a stroke. Russell Henley, you know, damn near a stroke. His iron play is so well right now. What like what are your thoughts on Jason Day with the iron play? Are you not worried about it? Do you think it's not that big of a deal at this tournament? Because it's something that I weighed very heavily. So that brought Jason Day down a little bit, but is off the tee and around the green, boosted him back up. So it's like he is a plus EV play for me this week, especially on DraftKings with his pricing. And then um, quick thought to go back at you, Daniel Berger, $7,400 on DraftKings this week. What in the hell is going on there? And I guess that sparked my question is do you, when you talked about Lucas Glover, do you think there's any concern with these guys that flew out likely Sunday night from some private airport around Des Moines, Iowa or Silvis, Illinois, wherever the hell they were at is like, does that matter at all to you? Cause a lot of these other guys were settled in last week and at the Scottish open they're chilling. I know the, the rules are a little strange this week for what they can and can't do, but do those guys flying in Sunday matter at all to you? Does it not matter? I guess. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm saying here. Rambling on. Well, we, we kind of talked about this off air last week with Daniel Berger, even on air to an extent, like, I don't understand why he played that tournament. And and I do think that it makes some sort of a difference having to get on a charter flight going over there. Those two guys in particular, I'm not as concerned about. And there's not tons of guys making this flight. I think a guy like Brian Harmon, I have a little bit more concern for. Like he had to sit around for two days and then he, you know, he's on the flight. I think the he looked horrible. He could not make a putt. Maybe he turns it around. He has the short game that maybe could. He hasn't been good at the open championship in his career. Uh, Berger in reality should probably be, if we're just talking DraftKings price tag, like he's interchangeable for me with Paul Casey. Like he should be a high $8,000 play. So I don't know what they're doing on the pricing with him. I'm not going to worry so much about him making that flight. You know, Glover's riding a high right now, which I'm almost a little bit more concerned with that of how he, he has to get on the plane. He just got his first victory in 10 years. He has a lot of things going on and maybe he rides us into another good performance, those are all concerns for me. I just think at plus 290, that's something I'm willing to overlook. Um, as far as Jason Day goes, I do think this is a second shot course. I think that you're going to have to be able to do certain things to make it work. I just think in his last two events, I've seen enough from him that I believe things are turning around. We know he has one of the best short games in the world. He's been amazing off the tee here recently. And really when the putter cooperates, he's finding success. And we finally saw him turn the putter around here you know, over these last two events. And and I think that's just something that if he can keep it rolling, you know, there's value to be had. My bigger concern with him is what happens to his back when he tees off early in the morning and it's all dewy and it's cold. And, you know, is he able to rebound from that more so than anything else? And I don't think he's made this trip to withdraw by any means, but you just never know what day at this point of his career. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows it too when they're punching a Jason Day ticket or locking him in a, a big GPP tournament, wherever the case may be, that it's going to be volatile, but he's probably going to be low owned again, maybe a little bit higher just because it seems like a lot of guys in the industry are talking about him. But if he's under 10%, like the sky's the limit with this guy, it's kind of just the bed you make, you got to sleep in it type of thing. I'm going to ride it with you because I also like Jason Day. I don't have as much as a man crush on him as you do, but. Uh, you know, he's up there with Louis season for me. So I do love Jason day. And if those, if his back's fine, like he probably wouldn't have made the trip if he was going to go out there and withdraw. So like, there's just a lot of logistical nightmare things to think about if he were to do that. So I think he's going to come out here and ball. I hope he does. Like you said, that off the tee is just so important here for me. It is 
and he's one of the best players off the tee right now. So I'm, I'm with you there. All right. Well, let's get into some outrights then. We are going to be on Jason Day, as you are aware, always. We have to be. Um, I only have two punch right now. It is Keegan Bradley, 170 to one at FanDuel. Bryson DeChambeau, three to, 33 to one on DraftKings, I believe I got two days ago. I think he's 30, 30 to one now, just too high of a price for a guy that, you know, like everything that Jay just said about Bryson, if the around the green game comes, he can win this tournament by, you know, a significant amount, two, three, four strokes, whatever the case may be, maybe more. I don't know, but this is usually a tournament where the cream rises to the top. And then I'm sure I'll have some more research done tomorrow. I'll post something on Twitter, but right now it's just Keegan and Bryson, unless you convince me into something else. Well, as far as Bryson goes, like I I love Jay's thoughts on him. I agree with what you just said about it. And I don't think enough of that is being talked about in the industry. Like he's roughly 3% owned right now on DraftKings. Sure. There is a disaster that can come into place where Bryson has everything that can possibly go wrong. And he misses this cut horribly. That's, that's a real problem here. But the thing is, is everybody's discounting his win equity that he actually possesses for when it hits right. He, he booms higher than anybody else booms. And I just think there is a recipe that he can find success here. I'm not going to look at his open championship results and say that he can't find success in a tournament like the open. I think at some point he will, maybe it's going to require, like Jay said, that he changes his, you know, short irons around a little bit to where, um, you know, to, they're not all the same length. I do think that's causing him some problems at this point of his game, but at over 30 to one, that's a high enough drift that I'm at least willing to take a look at it. I don't have an outright ticket on him, but I'd rather punch that outright ticket than, I mean, give a random example here, but I mean, Rory, I guess like, I don't really want to have a Rory ticket. And maybe I, I, you know, question saying that because he does have three top five finishes here over the last four years, but I just think that when Bryson gets himself into contention, he has a better chance to actually win the tournament than Rory does. It doesn't mean that Rory doesn't come in fourth place and give you a really good finish. I just think Bryson's upside for victory is, I mean, when you think higher than probably anybody in the world of golf. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Not don't even need to think twice. Maybe Capco just cause like it's uh, yeah. you know, what you said earlier about him, but it's those two for me all day. Maybe John Rahm, I guess, but uh, like, I don't know if John Rahm has like John Rahm's more safer to me than Bryson. I think that's probably statistically backed up as well, but the upside Kepka and Bryson for sure for me. Yeah. I guess in a major, it would be Kepka would be the highest win equity. I think when you look at the run of a mill tournament. I just think if it's going to come out of nowhere, Bryson is the most likely to just win out of left field. And we we just saw this recently with him. Like he missed a couple cuts and then he wins a tournament. Like I, I'm not questioning anything. Like I don't think the miscut at the rocket mortgage is as concerning as a lot of people do with it. Um, from an outright perspective, you know, one of the things I always talk about in these major championships is I always try to punch some tickets beforehand And this is the one I do the least of just because of the weather bias that comes into play with it. And ironically, the three tickets that I punched, I mean, you can kind of find the same numbers. Two of them, I I do wish I could get the money back on one of those guys being Webb Simpson, which we've talked about this off air also. I seem to have fallen into this rabbit hole with Webb Simpson that I back him every single week and I got him at 66 to one. I don't hate the number, and I do think his skill set makes sense from a bogey avoidance standpoint, from a short game perspective, but something's not right with him. I don't know if it's an injury concern. I don't know what's going on with him. I wouldn't be rushing to bet that at this moment if I didn't have the ticket. The second person was Daniel Berger. I also got him at 66 to one. 
my model loves him from a statistical perspective. It really doesn't like a lot of the other things, though, like when we look at event history or even the current form to a level. It's not loving what he's spitting out there. But those are the two of the three guys I got in early on. The other one was Patrick Cantley. I got him at 35 to 1, which that number is pretty readily available in the industry still. I've seen 33, 35s pretty much all over the place. I really, really like Cantley this week. Yep. I, re- I really liked Cantley at the Masters. That did not work out correctly. I really like Cantley again this week. And I just think that an open championship is the perfect setup for him. I, I don't think that the experience is a problem. He is 29 years old. There's a lot of upside that he possesses. I think that people always talk about Xander's close. I think Cantley is arguably closer than Xander is because at least he has shown the propensity to get himself across the finish line here in a more recent term than Xander has. And then the other two I punched this this week, I have Brooks Kepka at 18 to 1. You know, all those stats that I mentioned about how he's been at major championships. I typically don't like betting the sub 20 to 1 range at an open championship. I just think Brooks's win equity, as you just said, I mean, it's like Brooks and Bryson for me. And then I'm going to go down the road. I might regret it. Jason Day, 90 to 1. I got 95 to 1, but 90 to 1, I'm even fine lower than that. I will say, though, with Jason Day, from the upside perspective, when I did fiddle around with those numbers a little bit, he got worse as win equity came into play for me. So I think that makes sense, though, for a guy that's 90 to 1 or in that range when you're looking at it. Like, his win equity technically should be a little lower. The scary part about saying that is there's the back concerns and there's all those things. So where is the safety really at? Like from a safety perspective, my model doesn't know that the guy's inclined to get hurt at any moment. That's not something that it's, it's you know, being able to weigh into the model with it. I don't have strokes gained hurt that I can put into it. But uh, those are my five bets. As I said, Berger Webb would be probably guys I wouldn't be on. Brooks can't lay day. I am fine with the numbers. Uh, Speeth and Reed, I think at the right price makes sense. And then, oh, the other guy, I know we talked about him a little bit. Um, and I don't know if you have access to a book that possesses uh, where they pay ties out. I do. My offshore does, yes. Okay. What are your thoughts about Scotty Scheffler uh, for a top 20 I saw plus 188 at the book I had. I got plus 188 it was. Yeah. I'd like it at two to one. So that's pretty damn close. I'm not going to nitpick that. I have him 21st overall on my model. Yeah. So it's like red on the number. And so it's a, I, I think the proper for me was like 195, 200. I just rounded it up to is what I'd be looking for. Yeah, I, I have him 17th. Um, but a lot of that comes into play that. I don't have any event history on him. I he can play in the wind. That's a guy that can play in the wind. Good low ball flight hitter. I was watching videos of him today hitting a bunch of drives like two inches off the ground. So, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a good setup for him. I have not punched that ticket yet. That's not something that I've done. It was just a number that I found interesting. But, yeah, I mean, a guy like him, Sergio Neiman, Grace, as we mentioned, mm-hmm. I think those are guys that are interesting. If you can find the right market, the right head-to-head, maybe the right – top 20 number on them. I didn't necessarily see enough value. I don't love going into that top 20 bet with a lot of these guys that are not super long shots. And this is not a tournament that I'm going to necessarily be playing a lot of top twenties. in because I agree with you, I think the cream kind of rises to the top where Jay mentioned this and he is correct. You do get the outlier winner to an extent, but I think the outlier winner is still more of a guy like a Mark Leishman or a, 
you know, a Shane Lowry or somebody like that, that wins it at 80 to one or a hundred to one. Like, I don't know if it's the guy that you're getting to come in the top 20 at, you know, six to one or something like that. Okay. For sure. I mean, that's um, one. Also, I w- I wanted to bring this up a second ago. Patrick Cantlay, third overall in my model. Absolutely love him. I'm glad that you're on him because it's, he's just a guy I have a hard time punching a ticket on sometimes, but 35 to one. Yeah, if I can get 35 to one, I had proper at 25 to one. So even 33, I think you said is out there right now. I'm all about it. Let's ride that for sure. Um, anything else you want to add? I know this is a really long show, but I think everybody's going to enjoy the hell out of it. Cause that was just such a fun first hour there with Jay. Yeah. Jay was great. And you know, it's the open championship. It's go big or go home with that. But wait, um, question. Is this a narrative? We had Jay Delsing on. Do we bet Jay day? Simple. Like, is this the week? Jay Delsing, the week of Jay. You don't, I don't know. I could be stretching this here, but you know, it's golf kind of a, uh, I don't, what's the word I'm looking for? Hype. Uh, no, not hyperstitious. Super, super. I'm a little stitious, but yeah, superstitious. That is the word I was looking for. I haven't butchered anybody's name or many words on this podcast. So I was due hour and 30 minutes in. I had to do something wrong. So there you go. Is this a superstitious play in Jason Day? Jay's <laughs> name could have been Jack Smith. And, and we find a way, yeah. Find and it. you could have sold me on the narrative. They both have a J. That's good enough. <laughs> like it's not going to take much for me to get on day. So I mean, if we want to use that as our like core reasoning for why we're backing Jason Day, sure. But name could have been anything, and I'm sold with that. And as far as Patrick Cantlay is concerned, second in my model. But the thing that I am most intrigued with, and I could not tell you the last time this has happened, other than Justin Thomas at a specific course. Or Bryson DeChambeau at a specific course. You know, Thomas Moore, maybe so from the iron courses where his irons come into play. What I was saying is, is that when you look at this, Patrick Cantlay is number one on my model from a statistical perspective. He is the first person that has been number one in my model from a statistical perspective that is not named John Rom. Bryson DeChambeau or Justin Thomas the longest time. And the Justin Thomas is obviously comes at the iron courses. And the Bryson DeChambeau comes at the venues where the driver comes into play a little bit more. But I found that very interesting that Cantlay was number one in my model from a statistical perspective. And, you know, nobody seems to beat Rom at this point. And Rom is a guy that he was number two for me when I looked at that. But I think there's something to be said about that with Cantlay. And I don't really want to miss this first major win if he does have the potential to win this. 100% in. Let's uh, let's end on that note. So Patrick Cantlay, that is probably my favorite outright play. Now that you talked about it and I just actually looked at my numbers. I don't know how I haven't punched that ticket yet. But let's get after it. I hope everybody enjoyed this show. If you, you know, please write a review, rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever. I'm an Android guy, so Google Podcasts, whatever it may be. Um, let us know on Twitter what you thought about having uh, Jay on. We, you know, I could be more, I know, both of us love to get guests on this show. And so just love to hear everybody's thoughts on having someone like that on PGA experience. You know, we cannot get that elsewhere. None of us have played on tour. We're all, all math nerds that like betting. So to get an actual guy that's been there, done that, went overseas, played great on the, on the open championship. And like you said, he finished top 20 in the Scottish open the week before that. 
That's awesome. Tip of the cap to Jay. Just such a great dude. Um, love to hear everybody's thoughts. You know, we do this for you and it's all just, you know, our love of the game and love of the betting and everything like that. But Spencer, any closing thoughts and uh, good luck to you and, and everybody out there. Yeah. Good luck to everybody. Once again, thank you to Jay for joining us. That was an absolute blast with him and just good luck this week. Uh, as I always say, you know, try to bet this in an internal perspective. If you can, I do think there is some value to be had beforehand, but it's a volatile tournament and wind is going and weather is going to change this tournament. So try to keep some of your units open to get this into an in-tournament bet. And I I just think that that's my biggest takeaway with it is that I think there's going to be an opening for somebody at some point. Well, let's get after it. And like Jay said, that middle third of the board has some value. He says some people that you really don't think of can come up and win this thing. So let's go. Good luck, guys. Jason Day. That's the person. Boom.